Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you have insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. How do you know you're not overpaying? HealthLock can help. HealthLock is a technology company that securely connects with your insurance and reviews your claims for overbilling, wrong codes, and even fraud. To date, HealthLock has saved its members over $130 million. To save, visit HealthLock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, and this is Fast Politics, where we discuss the top political headlines with some of today's best minds. And MTG's rally for TRUMP didn't last 10 minutes. What a show, a show of shows we have today. Representative Rokana talks tech regulation, everyone's favorite, but we make it fun. Then we'll talk to The Washington Post's Michael Shearer about the dark money political group that could guarantee Donald Trump's re-election. But first, we have Washington Post contributing columnist, close personal friend, the one, the only, George Conway. Welcome back to Fast Politics, George Conway. Hi, Molly. Anything happened today? Nothing. Pretty much nothing. Yeah. Trump's lawyers. Good lawyers, bad lawyers discuss. I think Michelle seems like she's relatively smart because she knew to put an end to that little fiasco they had outside the courthouse. (laughs) Takapina, he shouldn't be allowed anywhere near microphone. (laughs) I don't know how he's going to try Gene Carroll's case in two or three weeks because he basically has nothing coherent to say. And I couldn't really get a feel for the new guy who didn't really seem to have a presence or command of of the situation. Um, But that may have been because there was so much noise in the very beginning when he was speaking. But it was sort of a very strange, I thought a very strange press conference that they held where you had the, the new lead guy, nobody could hear him. And then you had Takapina trying to assert himself as the alpha male and then Michelle is basically shutting them both down and saying, thank you very much. Let's go. I mean, that, that was my impression of it. I, I don't know if it struck you as any different, but it just, it, it was a very, very odd. And I don't think they did a very good job helping their client there. Well, why are they even having a press conference? 
because uh, Donald Trump is watching TV on the way back to LaGuardia Airport, and he expects his lawyers to say some crazy stuff that will make him feel better, or else he's going to get on the phone as soon as he gets on the 757, and he's going to start yelling at somebody. Right. You know, I mean, there's not careful legal analysis of it. No, no, I'm aware. Since you are a lawyer who can do careful legal analysis, let's just talk for a minute about this case. There are other cases coming down the pike that are probably stronger cases. I don't think this case is a weak case. I mean, I think people are saying, that's it. Oh, that's all they have. Oh, it's right. He'll beat this rap. It's like, I don't think that's necessarily true. I don't think it's true because, first of all, he did it. He's guilty. The, le- the, lo- the charges, have you read the indictment and the statement of facts? I think they're legally sufficient. I think the criticism you can make of the case is this case should have been brought years ago. Right. It should have been brought by the feds back in 2020 and 2021. And I didn't have the expectations that other people had for it. On the other hand, you know, this is this case is, you know, this case, the next proceeding in this case is going to be in December, I gather, according to the, right. to the reporting. And, and um, you know, we're going to have so much. This will be so far in the rearview mirror by then. It's not going to be. We're going to forget about this case for a while. In fact, we're going to forget about this case within a couple of weeks because. Right. Well, talk to us about the Gene Carroll trial, because you have some insight there. Well, I don't, I don't know that I have any particular insight. I mean, I, I did help her find a lawyer at some party. Look, I mean, I think this case is, I think it's a passable case. I think it's, it's perfectly fine. I think if, he were, if it's tried, he'll probably be convicted. His best chance in this case is to argue that the charges should all be misdemeanors. Right. And I don't think he's going to win on that. He could win on that, but I don't think he's going to win cleanly on it. And I, I don't think he really wants to face a juror, a jury of Manhattanites in this case. But on the other hand, I mean, the, the, you know, the fact of the matter is, is like we've got the more serious things coming up, which will be the Georgia case as much is very serious. Gene Carroll case is going to be quite a show. And he's dead to right on, dead to rights as far as I can tell on the, on the Mar-a-Lago, Mar-a-Lago documents. Yeah, the Mar-a-Lago documents case is a real, I mean, there can be obstruction there. I mean, there are a lot of things that could happen there. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I've I've been saying for months that it's the shortest distance between an orange jumpsuit. So basically he came in, he said he was not guilty. It took an hour, then they got him out. Do we think there was a, we think there wasn't a mugshot? There wasn't many of the normal things we think of when people getting booked. I, you know, I, I, I don't know. Having never attended a booking in, in Manhattan, <laughs> I can't speak to that, but they, they didn't take a mugshot, I gather, and they didn't do fingerprints because we should be so lucky that we can't find Donald Trump. <laughs> I mean, it's funny because reading this document, one of the things that I'm struck by is just how many of the stories from the first season come back. Oh, look, I mean, it's always the love child. Right. Yeah, you know, it's an HBO special, you know. They wait five seasons and you come back and somebody resurfaces from season one. You know, and, and the Sopranos was somebody who gets, gets released from prison after after four seasons away. So, you know, I mean, that's, that's just what happens. And then that's life in Trump land. We haven't seen the evidence. We've just seen what's in this document, but... There's no evidence to see. And in, in, in the following sense, it's like, these documents say what they say. They were false. Right. Jim Trusty was on CNN with Jake Tapper 
attacking Cohen's credibility, but Cohen's credibility isn't really an issue. I mean, the, the, the issue is, did this all happen? Did, were these checks written? And they were. And he, he signed some of them. Right. So I don't see how he's not convicted of something. Whether it's a misdemeanor or a felony is going to be, a, there, there are a couple of interesting issues that how you apply the state law here and what it takes to bump up a misdemeanor to a felony. And I could argue both sides of that. I think the DA has the better of it. Can you give us just a sort of a clue on what what it is that changes a misdemeanor to a felony? Yeah, but here, here's what it is. I mean, basically, it's a misdemeanor to falsify books and records in the state of New York. Okay, corporate books and records. But it can be a felony if you're committing and doing the falsification with the intent to commit fraud or with the intent to commit another crime. So the question is, all right, what's the other crime in order for it to become a felony? And the other crime, as Bragg explained at his press conference and the, and the indictment, but the indictment less than clear about it, there's a potential Federal Election Campaign Act violation and violation of the contribution limits. There's also a state uh, campaign finance law, which uh, pro- prohibits the use of, uh, prohibits promoting a candidacy through illegal means. And then there's also, there was also some tax angle that he described where I think it was, there was, there was a, they believe it was a scheme to falsely report pay, the payment, the story Daniel payments as income to Michael Cohen, even though it wasn't, although they grossed them up for it. There's no reason why one of those won't stick, and I think they, they probably will. One, one of those three possibilities will stick, but we'll see. I mean, you know, he could, he could maybe, he'll, maybe he'll get convicted and, and, and it'll get sent reversed to a misdemeanor on appeal. But I don't see how they don't prove the elements of these things as a misdemeanor at a minimum and, and probably a felon. We see Don Jr. is really leaning in on pumping up a lot of information about the judge's daughter. I mean, does the ju- do is there any legal mechanism to protect this judge's daughter from this sort of right wing? I mean, the, some of these people are theoretically dangerous, right? Right. And, and, and the defendant obviously can't be subject to restraint because he's the defendant. He didn't get a gag order, which I think is kind of shocking. I think the judge was smart not to do it on day one. Okay. I think his, he was smart to create or what he, what he probably did or what it sounds like he did. Um, we'll see the transcript, I'm sure. But what he did was he, he, he cautioned both sides, um, exercised restraint in their public statements about the case. Yeah, well, I'm sure Trump will do that. He's known for his restraint. Yeah, we'll see how that goes. You know, Don Jr.'s post about the daughter of the judge was really... And that was sick. That was sick and insane. And the jurisdiction, I think, that the court might have over him could be that he, you know, he's a potential witness. He signed some of those checks. Right. Well, we don't know which, if it was he or Eric, right? No, it was, it was Don Jr. who signed some of these checks, at least one of them. Okay. He may be a potential witness. He might be subject to, the, to a gag order because of that. Although you know, he probably might have a first amendment defense, I don't know. I have to have to do the analysis. This is how these guys play, though. That's that's the thing that's so maddening about it is they have no morals, no compunction. They will they they want to threaten and intimidate people. And the notion that he's posting photographs on Truth Social and on Twitter of the judge's daughter is is really really sick and insane. 
But this is what they do. This is how they act. Yeah. I mean, Trump obviously is delighted by this as a fundraising technique. I mean, he's been sending fundraising emails out all day. I don't think he's delighted. I think he's horrified. I think he's lost control of the situation. And I think he knows that. I mean, here's a, you know, this was, this was the ultimate indignity for him so far. The indignities are going to get worse for him as he gets further and further down the legal process and gets you know, more charges laid against him. He, he's completely lost control of the situation. I, I, the symbolic thing to me that I saw was the court officers were leading him into the hallway outside the courtroom and they didn't hold the door open for him. They let the door just kind of close in his face. And I kept thinking, watching that, Trump having to push the door open for himself for the first time in probably who knows how many years. So contrasting that with the time that he, you know, shoved aside, I think it was the prime minister of Montenegro so he could get it in front of a photograph at a NATO summit. Right. You know, <laughs> you a, yeah. Contrast. So anyway, that's, that was sort of the, the, the thing about it. That was the impression that I left it. But the image that I will always carry with me watching this show today no, it's, I think it's the beginning of the end for him, but it's going to take a while. So what you're saying is kind of what Maggie said all along, which is this idea that, in fact, Trump, while he is sending out fundraising emails with the fake mugshot and he is certainly raising money and cashing in, you do truly believe that psychologically he's not doing well with us. No, of course not. But there's a problem with all crazy narcissists, which is they want to be the center of attention. They want everything to revolve around them, but they're terrified of being humiliated. And those two urges, and they conflict, and we've seen this a thousand times with Trump, because he wants to put himself in the middle of everything, and he's, but he's too stupid to know how to do it, and he ends up doing it in a way that either gets him into trouble or makes or causes him to make a fool out of himself. I mean, you, you know, you can just think of so many different instances, like his, his press conferences at, uh, in COVID, you know, where he pretended to be know everything right. and he made, make a complete jackass out of himself because he's an idiot. That's the conundrum he faces here, except it's just, it's what's at risk for him is not just his reputation and it, the perception that some people have of whether he's intelligent or not, but his liberty is it. And we're going to see that again right in each one of these cases where he is charged and tried. So now I'm going to ask you one last question, which is like the annoying question that I ask people when I'm really interested and just want to know for my own notification. How do you think this plays out? I mean, do you think that, and again, I know you can't get to the machinations of like, does he get found guilty in which cases, but more just the question is like, do you think eventually he's like, this is enough, I'm going to, or do you think he just fights? You know, he's not going away. He will not go away. He cannot help himself. This is a death match, a cage match, a struggle to the end for him because it's existential for him. Um, and I don't know, I, I don't know any way out of it for him. I don't, he's not going to throw in the towel. He's not going to plead guilty. He's not going to admit a mistake or error or a crime. He's just going to continue to fight back in the ways that he knows how to fight back, which is engaging in, in attacks on the justice system and the people who are acting in actors in the justice system and attacking the rule of law and 
inciting physical violence, what he's going to do because he doesn't really have a playbook that works in this situation because he doesn't know the facts and he doesn't know the law. I want to ask you uh, one last question. Does Trump get the nomination? Yes. There's no one else. Who's going to get the nomination? Is there anyone else really running? (laughs) Marco? Nikki Haley? Nikki what? (laughs) George Conway. Nikki, what? All right. (laughs) Always a delight. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So, how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, Take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash strategic. That's oracle.com slash strategic. oracle.com slash strategic. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com news. That's LifeLock.com news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire.
It took 11 years to get to the sale. The NYX Anniversary Sale is on now at knix.com. Celebrate the intimate apparel company that has reinvented products for real life with one of NYX's biggest sales of the year. Get 30% off all leak-proof apparel from the number one leak-proof brand in North America, including period underwear, swimwear, activewear, and more. Millions of people have made the switch to NYX leak-proof underwear, and there's never been a better time for you to try. Save 30% on super comfortable, machine-washable, and great-looking underwear that's perfect for periods and light bladder leaks. Choose from a variety of colors, styles, and sizes, from extra small to 4XL. You can even match your leak-proof underwear with an incredibly supportive and comfortable NYX wireless bra. Don't miss this chance to stock up on your NYX favorites or try something new. It only happens once a year at NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com for the NYX anniversary sale. Hurry, the sale ends on Monday, May 13th. Go to NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com. Congressman Ro Khanna represents California's 17th District. Welcome back to Fast Politics, Congressman Ro Khanna. Thank you, Molly. Always a pleasure to be on. I always want to talk to you because I think you're fascinating, but I really want to talk to you when the bank runs started. <laughs> that is your district, Silicon Valley, home of... Uh, you know, great innovation and some other stuff. Talk to me about where we are now with that. I'm glad the administration made the decision to protect all of the depositors. It would have been catastrophic for regional banks if they hadn't done that. I was pushing Secretary Yellen, as you may remember, on Face the Nation Sunday morning. They made the decision to finally protect the depositors by Sunday evening. If not, you would have had everyone rushing to put their money in four banks in this country, uh, J.P. Morgan, Chase, Wells Fargo, and Bank of America. And in the past 10 years, there have been 73 bank failures that uh, where the FDIC has been involved. In 72 of those cases, depositors have had uh, all their money. So this is consistent with what we've done over the last 10 years. Now, I think we, what we need to do is make sure that we are taking care of the uninsured accounts and charging a fee for them. Right now, we have about $10 trillion in money that is insured, $8 trillion in money that is uninsured in the banking system. I like in those uninsured account holders to uninsured drivers. They're basically driving with no insurance and all of us bear the risk. I'm working with Republican on a bill to have a mandatory fee on those accounts and mandatory insurance. I want to get back to this for a second because I think this is important here. I mean, these accounts are uninsured after 250. Correct. This was the way that it was set up. I mean, this wasn't like a personal choice. I mean, people have their money in those banks. They know that uh, the money is only insured up to 250000 and that it was uninsured beyond that. But, you know, if you're a startup or small business and you've got a couple million bucks in that account that you're using for payroll, people didn't just, they didn't expect the bank run. And what ends up happening is when these banks end up failing, the FDIC lending deposit fund comes in and guarantees depositors, and that's uh, funded by bank premiums. And it, what and the bank premiums end up going up, but ultimately the, the users of banks, all of us, pay that cost. And what I'm suggesting is that if you have an account over 250000 you should be required to pay some mandatory bank insurance fee so that if the bank by some chance goes under, 
there's a fund to cover the deposit. Right. No, no, exactly. Now, I want to ask you that weekend, <laughs> Thursday, we learned about Silicon Valley Bank. I, I mean, that weekend, did you get so many anxious phone calls? I did. I mean, I probably had 100 texts by Friday afternoon. I sent out an email to people in the Valley, and I think 4 p.m. on Friday, and we had 600 people by 7.30 join a webinar on one email, and was probably the only person from government communicating with all of these tech entrepreneurs, VCs, uh, folks out in the Valley, trying to appeal to calm. But what I realized on that call was, you know, money now is moving at the speed of Twitter, already folks are on social media, and We've got to have government move fast in a modern economy. Right. Was this White House, did you feel like they were open to your suggestions and the suggestions of your colleagues? I do. I, I thought Steve Reschetti in particular was open. I told Treasury with, with respect that while Janet Yellen is a far smarter economist uh, than I will ever be. I had to gently contradict her on Face the Nation when I was asked to respond. And the reason is she was being a bit more hesitant. And I think there was an idea with the FDIC that they should give 50% of the deposits back on Monday morning. And that, as a matter of economic theory, may have been fine. But as a practical matter, what we needed was decisive leadership to say that the depositors deposits will be protected to bring calm to make sure there wasn't a regional run of the bank and i give the administration credit that they got there by sunday evening before the markets opened and so they made the decision in time now i understand there was a hesitation no one wants to be seen out as bailing out the banks i don't believe this was a bailout because the executives and shareholders will go to zero but you remember what Obama didn't go after the bank executives. That was a real problem. And so I'm sure that that was weighing on the White House's mind appropriately. As I said to a number of people at the White House, no one has a greater stake in the success of the American economy than President Biden. And right. if we had not acted, it would have been potentially catastrophic for the American economy. Yeah. And likely for democracy, too, possibly because a lot is riding on the Biden reelection. I want to ask you, there have been a lot of chatter that you were going to make an announcement. <laughs> and in the end, you endorsed Representative Barbara Lee. Why did you do that? Of course, I love serving in the House of Representatives for two reasons. I believe representing Silicon Valley is one of the most consequential places, for better or worse, in the world to, to represent. And that was uh, brought home to me in the few weeks uh, before my announcement with all of the Silicon Valley Bank crisis. Second, a lot of the interesting, exciting people uh, of this next generation are in the house, Maxwell Frost and Delia Ramirez and Summer Lee, and, and just so much energy that I feel like I can make a contribution uh, in, in the house on bold, progressive, innovative policy. In terms of Barbara Lee, I've admired her my whole adult life. Uh, she's a strong anti-war voice of a, a right. person of courage. That's why I endorsed her. So Barbara Lee is most famous for having been the one person to stand up on the Iraq war. And I'm a big fan of hers, too. I'm going to push back here. She's 76. But a young 76. I mean, I'm not saying that in a... There, there's <laughs> right. some people who... 
age. There are other people like Nancy Pelosi or Barbara Lee who have more energy than members of Congress my my age. And she's, uh, you know, I remember when I, a few years ago, going with Barbara down to see President Carter. And, you know, she had rented a car from the Atlanta airport. We went down to Plains, Georgia, and she drove the whole way, drove back. I mean, she's she's yeah. a silver uh, up and about doing exciting things. If I didn't think she had the energy uh, or the passion for it, I, I wouldn't have endorsed her. So now I want to talk to you about regulation because this is something near and dear to my heart. We uh, So we had this, you know, again, these regional banks, we're going to go back to the bank run for a minute, but I'm going to take this somewhere else too. The regional banks had less regulation than the larger banks. Part of what we're living through now is we're living through a lot of the Trump deregulation. And that's why we're having all these train derailments. And that's why we're having all these things that could have been avoidable. Talk to me where you are about the bank regulations, the train regulations, and then I'm going to ask you something else about that. Silicon Valley Bank was lobbying me and many people to have the deregulation in 2018, saying, well, you don't understand. It's an entrepreneurial economy. We need Latitude. We can't have the same regulations as the people in New York. They don't understand the Valley culture. And I'm very proud that I uh, voted against what they were recommending and voted uphold Dodd-Frank. And I wish everyone had done that. A lot of Democrats did, but a few didn't. And Trump ultimately signed it. Had that legislation been into effect, I think this wouldn't have occurred. I mean, there would have been stress and liquidity tests. Now, some people are saying that the liquidity and stress tests wouldn't have accounted for rapidly rising interest rates. That's a problem with the test if they didn't. But more than what the test is that this would it would have been a signal to the Fed and regulators that you need to monitor and enforce regulations against mid-sized large banks. Instead, by passing the deregulation, we set a, sent a signal, leave these banks alone. And this was the consequence. You represent Silicon Valley. We are in this moment where AI is is about to sort of explode onto the scene in a big way. Congress has had some trouble regulating technology that I feel like that's the understatement of the year. Talk to me about what you can do, what you think you can do, what you think needs to be done. First, it's important to understand what AI is, which is basically looking at a large patterns of data, large patterns of language, and finding patterns there. But the one thing it can't do is to see if those patterns are actually true. They correspond with the external world, or if they correspond with a person's own constitution or aspirations. And so it doesn't replace judgment or human thinking. The challenge is by looking for these patterns, I mean, there's some advantages to it. We want to use these patterns to find a rare cancer, to figure out how to map the human genome so that we can have cures, to figure out how you target a military base without having collateral damage with civilians. But we also have to be careful that there are dangers. What if you have large patterns and the patterns end up having falsehoods in them and you don't have human verification or a check, then you're going to spew more misinformation. What if you have a bias? program that spots these parents and starts making decisions that can wreck havoc without a safety check. And so what we need is a safety check. And what we need is a check on human judgment uh, to avoid the negatives of AI. So what does that mean? It means we need regulations that say 
if you have a complex AI system, you need to have human judgment. Let me give you an example. If we're going to use AI in our defense department, I don't trust a machine to authorize the strike. I think a general or someone has to look at that. If we're going to have AI do Wikipedia entries, we need to have human editors still. Right. You know, we need a human check. We need a safety check. Uh, but, you know, I mean, think about AI as this. Like, let's say you ask ChatGPT, how can I be happy? What ChatGPT will do is it'll go and look at every language model uh, with your demographics, with your geography, with your characteristics as a journalist and, and come up with a, a four paragraph answer on, on how you can be happy based on what it detected in language in that circumstance. I don't think anyone in this country would say, okay, that's really how I could be happy. I, I mean, right. if it was that simple, because it's not corresponding to really a depth of understanding of who you are, what your life is, what your goals are, what your vulnerabilities are. So it's important to neither exaggerate nor minimize what AI is. It's transformative in that it allows us to use large patterns and to figure that out quickly. So we literally can now figure out someone's human genome for a hundred bucks, whereas what Bill Clinton was doing, it, it cost three billion bucks to figure out a person's uh, DNA sequence. That's extraordinary. But we're not going to be replacing judgment, empathy, thinking, or an understanding of truth. So we still need our philosophy majors. I get that. But let's just talk about the sort of broader tech regulation for a minute. Elon bought Twitter. Twitter still continues to really be a sort of hub for journalists and politicians. There's no regulation, right? He's not forced to keep people verified. The White House said they wouldn't pay for verification. He stripped the New York Times. I mean, this is just an example, but I want to like get to what its larger implications for real world legislation. There are no rules in Twitter or in the internet at writ large. I mean, he can do whatever he wants. Well, he's disciplined by the market and by human demand. I mean, if he'd really started doing just things that were totally outrageous, then people would prob presumably migrate off. The problem is whatever they were advertised as Mastodon or something, I mean, it was so boring. Right, 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 right. No, no, it's not great. It's hard to use. But I mean, I'm just thinking about like the larger implications of like, there certainly seem like there are regulatory things that need to happen when it comes to technology. Absolutely. The first thing that needs to happen is protecting people's own data and people owning their own data. But in a platform like Twitter, I think one of the things that needs to happen is more competition so more platforms can come so that they're right. basic antitrust. And then as I told Elon directly, I said, why do you want to be the person calling the balls and strikes? Why do you want to be the person who's going to, you know, call the automatic strike, you know, these days where, where the baseball, the pitcher's count runs out and, and you're the one saying, okay, this is not verified. This is verified. This is a tweet that has a problem. I mean, you're, you're an innovator. Go focus on getting us to Mars or go focus at Starlink or SpaceX. But, you know, if you're going to own Twitter, set up an independent board that's going to make these, these balls and strikes so you're not involved in the muck. And Jeff Bezos, like it or not, you know, did that with the Washington Post. When I write articles or the Washington Post criticizes me, I'm not sitting there thinking that Jeff Bezos is criticizing me. And people, you know, you could have some complex theory of how it's corporate owned, but as a basic matter, there's an independence between the corporate ownership and the editorial decision-making. And I think social media platforms would be well served with that, whether that's Zuckerberg or Elon Musk, to just have some role of separation between those who do the content 
And those were the capital owners. Right. So now we have just had another mass shooting. The Republicans, I'm sure you saw this this thing with Jamal Bowman and Thomas Massey, Thomas Massey, Armal, the teachers. Republicans seem to be operating in bad faith about the guns. Do you see any light on the horizon here? I mean, when Sandy Hook happened and we didn't do anything after six-year-olds were murdered, I said, what is the capacity of this country to react? I mean, what would it take? I mean, we've been, and we've seen, to me, that was sort of emblematic of one of the most horrific things that could happen, and the country did nothing. And now it just keeps repeating in some form. I mean, nine-year-olds shot to death, and we're not responding. I guess the question for me is just this next generation, the young folks, they they are growing up with this anxiety and this real need to do something. And it's going to take their generation getting involved and, and continuing to hold us to account. But it's been a, a frustration of mine, seven years in Congress. The only thing we did was Chris Murphy's law, the bipartisan one, and that's just one step. I mean, we still have so much more to do, and but it's very polarizing. I don't know, and I'm you know, Molly, I'm someone who works across the aisle on a lot of things, but this is just one area uh, where the, the parties are totally divided. Yeah, I mean, it's such a complete nightmare. Rokana, thank you so much. I hope you will come back. I always enjoy it. Thank you. Michael Shearer is a national political reporter at The Washington Post. Welcome to Fast Politics, Michael. Hey, how are you? You know, you've written two articles that have captured my anxiety, that have spun me into a whole new level of anxiety. And this whole problem starts with a man called Mark Penn. Talk to us about No Labels. So No Labels is a group that's been around for more than a decade. Yeah. And mostly what they've been is like a centrist think tank. They help set up something called the Problem Solvers Caucus of the House, right? which is like Republicans and Democrats who want to get together and find a bipartisan solution right. close to Joe Manchin. And then they later branched out into the, uh, this network of PACs and helping politicians get elected. But they had started last year something entirely new and different. And that is a project that will cost, they estimate, $70 million to get on all 50 state ballots so that if they want to next year, they can run a third party candidate in the presidential election and possibly in the down ballot race for a senator or house on the theory that the American people don't want to see a matchup between the two people who will be put forward by the major party candidates. They've been sort of operating on the assumption that Joe Biden and Donald Trump will be the nominees, even though they won't say explicitly that Biden is an unacceptable nominee, they're kind of inferring that. Because they think he's too liberal, right? The whole idea is they want less liberal, right? Or at least if they were to keep going on their bullshit, that would be it, right? Yeah, on the assumption that Biden does not represent the broad, rational, common sense middle ground of American politics and has been steered to the left by the crazy far left activists. Yeah. Okay, it's not true, but yes, continue. So they have put together this uh, group of mostly former, you know, name brandish politicians, Joe Lieberman of the 2000 Democratic ticket fame, who is now an independent, Pat McCrory, the former governor and Senate candidate, Republican side in North Carolina, Larry Hogan, who considered a presidential run for himself, former governor 
of Maryland Republican. And they're floating this idea that the unthinkable is possible if only, uh, you know, Americans try and think outside the two-party box. And they call it an insurance policy, and they say it will not be triggered until they have more polling and possibly named candidates sometime early next year. They're going to have a convention in April in Texas where these candidates may win the nomination of no labels, which is not actually a political party, which is legally interesting. <laughs> and then they may run. And they say they're not going to do it if they're going to just be spoilers. They're not trying to do the Ralph Nader get 5% thing that happened in 2000. They're going to run only if they can win. And they've done a bunch of polling so far. The polling they've done so far does not clearly show that they have a path. It does show what we kind of all know, which is that you know the American people are pretty unhappy with the direction of the country. The American people are economically anxious. I don't trust anything that comes out of no levels. But let's talk about Mark Penn and Nancy. Explain to us a little bit, our listeners, what the history of Mark Penn is. So Mark Penn came up in the Clinton years. He was a pollster political consultant for former President Clinton. And then when Hillary Clinton ran for president in 2008, he was the main consultant to Hillary Clinton. And he made a number of big bets about how and why she would win the primary against Barack Obama that did not prove to be correct. And after that, his relationship to the Democratic Party became more and more rocky. Yeah. So so would you say that Mark Penn was mad that he sort of had a falling out with Hillary Clinton? Yeah, I think it was broader than just Hillary Clinton. I think it was it was a, like there was a falling out within that campaign. Losing campaigns tend to dissolve in acrimony, right. but so that happened. But there was a broader falling out, and and Penn started talking in the years after that about the opening for a third party bid. He ended up working for Microsoft for a while. His wife Nancy Jacobson, who was the founder and CEO of No Labels, sort of took the ball. And initially, this wasn't a third party effort, right? This was just a sort of like, can we get a common sense middle ground to American politics and empower the the sort of non-wacky part of the electorate. Right. And then that built over time. Now, Nancy's team says Mark Penn has absolutely no involvement with no label. But we know that's not true. It is also true that Mark Penn has been echoing the same things publicly that no labels is saying now. He's written about it in columns in the Hill and 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 spoken about it publicly. It's also true that Harris X, the polling firm that no labels uses, is owned by a large public company called Stagwell that Mark Penn now runs. There are relationships <laughs> here, although the No Labels people will push back very hard at the idea that, you know, Nancy Jacobson couldn't be doing this on her own and that she would need her husband's help to come up with these ideas. Now, there have been times in the past where it's been reported that Penn has helped sort of kibitz about tweets that No Labels has put out and stuff like that. I want to ask you about No Labels' connection to Targeted Victory. Targeted Victory is owned by Stagwell, the same company that owned Harris X, the pollster. They also happen to own SKDK, which is the Democratic firm that Anita Dunn and a bunch of Biden advisors work for. In the past, No Labels has used Targeted Victory, which has like sort of digital. Yeah. I mean, it also has some very sketchy people who work for it. Targeted Victory knows? Targeted yeah. Victory, interestingly, is going to be basically the Tim Scott campaign very shortly, oh. I think. I mean, oh, Tim wow. Scott is on his way towards announcing he can always pull back. But the whole, like if you, I, I was out in Iowa with Tim Scott a few weeks ago and the whole crew traveling with him are Targeted Victory people. They're 
definitely signed up for a presidential race of their own. I don't know if targeted victory is still working directly with no labels, although we know that in the past they've been a vendor. Now I want to ask you about this situation. So we have this third party group. They have clearly some kind of relationship with Joe Manchin. Will you talk to us about that? I met with him last Thursday and I said, well, so is Joe Manchin all of this? And the answer was, well, Joe Manchin is a friend of this effort of no labels. We've worked with him for a long time. It's been reported that Joe Manchin shows up at no labels events. Manchin also has the sort of stated desire to punish the far right and the far left and elevate the center. So they have similar ideological approaches. Maybe. Right. I mean, that's what they say their approach is. I would like not give them the benefit of the doubt. I know you need to be a straight reporter, but I can have my opinion. But Manchin did get on the phone with me on Saturday and it said very clearly, not only that he he thought that a 2024 project by no labels and this insurance policy was a great idea for the country and for democracy as a way of sort of punishing the extremes, but also that he would not rule in or rule out appearing on the ticket himself. He's probably not going to run for Senate again. He could. He's not sort of making the moves you would make if he was going to run for Senate again. It's a very tough state for him to win again. He said he'll make a decision by the end of the year. And he also said by the end of the year, he'll make a decision about whether to run for something else like maybe president. I don't know who that ticket is for, but I know who it can hurt. So let me ask you, there's another thing happening with no labels is they're working really hard to get on the ballot in a state where one of their favorite politicians is running for re-election. Talk to us about that. Well, so they're, they're trying to get on all 50 ballots, all 50 states, but they, one of the early ones they did do was Arizona. They collected the signatures they needed. They delivered the signatures to the Democratic Secretary of State, Adrian Fontes. He said, you got it. These are the right signatures. You're going to be able to be on the ballot. And last week, the Arizona Democratic Party filed suit saying that the Secretary of State erred in accepting those signatures. Now, the concern among Democrats is twofold. One, Arizona's a swing state in a presidential race. So if, say, Joe Manchin's on the ticket, it could hurt Biden, Trump, or Republican X could actually win the, the electoral votes in that state. But also Kristen Sinema, the formerly Democratic senator who's now an independent, has not said whether she's going to run for re-election again. And it's possible we have a three-way race in that state. And now if we have a three-way race, presumably cinema would have a place to, to a way to appear on the ballot pretty easily by getting no labels to give her their ballot line. Do Democrats have a case? So the case they make, I'm not a lawyer. I, I don't know the answer to that, but I can explain what the case is. The case yeah. they make is that you need to collect a very large amount of signatures. And so no labels collected something like 40,000 signatures. And the state statute says when the signatures are turned on in, they have to come with affidavits from electors that this party, this new party is going to use, basically who the party is, like the board of directors of the party. And the affidavits have to say that the signatures are right and proper and real. The affidavits were submitted, but the signature on the affidavits came before all the signatures were collected. Oh, so that's kind of sketch. That's the case they're making. That it was sort of a process error here. And that since the electors could not have sworn to the validity of the signatures, since right. they weren't all collected, the affidavits aren't true, they're false. And if the affidavits are false, then the law has not been followed and this party cannot be on the ballot. Do you think it'll work? Like, I honestly don't know. There's a lot of ways I could hypothetically say a judge could try and splice that. The other fact is that the signatures have been checked partially 
and they're okay. It's not like the signatures are bad. Right. It's this process error. So I don't know the answer how it goes. I think the way to look at that lawsuit, though, is that this is sort of the opening bell of a much broader war that is getting started now, in which the Democrats are going to come after no labels at every return. I also don't rule out, I know the Republican Party and some of its consultants have been looking at this too. Right now, the sense I get from talking to people over there is that they don't see this as, they think this probably hurts Democrats more than Republicans, at least where they've looked, but they have not ruled out the possibility that a third party ballot could hurt them. So I, you could you could foresee in the coming months, maybe in a different state, uh, depending on you know who signs the signature ballots and what the dynamics of the state are, that Republicans will push back against this. But that said, the rules is very well funded, and signature gathering is basically a math equation involving money on one end and signatures coming out the other end. You just get enough people to collect the signatures, you'll eventually get their signatures. These sort of challenges may slow things down, but I doubt they can disrupt the whole project. Why are they so well-funded? Who gives money to no labels? Wouldn't we all like to know? (laughs) Well, we know a little bit. Republican Nelson Peltz. The signature gathering effort of no labels is being funded through a nonprofit group that does not disclose its donors. Ergo dark money. Yeah. There are other political operations of no labels. The stuff which I referenced before that where they fund candidates they like that have been involved donations from named donors. And a number of those donors, you know, those donors include longtime Republican donors. I mean, I think that clearly no labels appeals to a type of Republicans, Wall Street, uh, you know, low regulation, moderate tax cuts for billionaires, but also not social warrior, kind of like chamber of commerce type well-heeled person. And so presumably the donors to this effort are the same as the donors to what has been disclosed to those PACs. But we don't know when I asked Nancy Jacobson why she's not disclosing the donors. She said she wants to shield them from the hate that comes. <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ. What a fucking baby. If reelecting Donald Trump is wrong, she doesn't want to be right. So uh, dark money donors, but certainly a fair number of Republicans that we know, Nelson Peltz, et cetera have given in the past. And also uh, everyone's favorite union buster, uh, Starbucks chief, right? In in 2018. Maybe he did. I don't I don't know that. I mean, I think he's an interesting one to bring up Howard Schultz because he came into like the theory of the case is that this is realistic and doable. It can be done, right? You can get 36, 38 percent of the country to vote for somebody who's not a Democrat or Republican. If you remember four years ago, around this time, Howard Schultz was like on a book tour of sorts. Yeah. Trying to drum up support. And after he did a 60 Minutes special and the whole premise of it was, look, 40 percent of America identifies as independent. So we just have to go tell them they've got a candidate now and we'll win. And what he found out very quickly is that something that political scientists have done and pollsters have done for a long time is when you call yourself independent, it doesn't mean you're independent. Like almost all of those people who call themselves independent behave almost identically to Democrats or Republicans. And the pure independent portion of the electorate is somewhere between, I don't know, 5 and 10%, depending on who you talk to and how you ask the question. Yeah, really quite disturbing and also worrying. I appreciate you coming on. I hope you'll come back. Yeah, I'd love to. Thank you for having me. And now your moment of fuckery. Jesse Cannon. 
Ben. Molly Jung Fast. There's fuckery abounds in Florida. Who would have thunk that state could deliver it? Two very authoritarian things happened in two very authoritarian GOP state houses. And while they don't involve Donald Trump, they are still extremely relevant. One of them was there was a protest of the state's very of uh, Florida's extremely draconian anti-choice laws. And during that protest, Nikki Freed, who was the ag chair and ran recently ran for governor, was arrested, arrested for peacefully protesting, which technically were not supposed to be arrested for peacefully protesting. And then in the state of Tennessee, which has had a lot of protests because they just recently had a school shooting, the Republicans took steps to expel these three Democratic lawmakers because of the using the protests as the excuse. These are both ways in which small ways in which these Republican leaning authoritarian curious state government is trying to hurt the few Democrats in legislature in these states. So they are our many moments of fuckery. That's it for this episode of Fast Politics. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to hear the best minds in politics make sense of all this chaos. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please send it to a friend and keep the conversation going. And again, thanks for listening. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Do you love fashion? Do you love getting compliments on how well you're dressed? Are you always seeking the latest trends? Then we're talking to you. BostonProper.com is your fashion destination and the only place to go for all those nods, head turns, and new styles. No matter the day, season, or occasion, Boston Proper has what you're looking for. Sophisticated, confident clothing designed to flatter and get noticed. So visit BostonProper.com now and start creating your perfect wardrobe. Boston Proper. Wear it like no one else.